Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your Chancellor, Rob Zachney, and at last we are discussing Crusader Kings 3. Today, we welcome freelance shield maiden, Liana Hafer. I left freelance in there, I didn't mean to say that. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, <laughs> I, I am. We fired her to be our marshal. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, those are all accurate. Hello. We also have our steward, Rowan Kaiser. Hello. And finally, we welcome Spymaster Fraser Brown. Hello. So today we're talking about Paradox Development Studios Crusader Kings 3. And I've been struggling for an easy way to give an interesting nutshell of this game because there's a lot of different games it can be. Uh, So here's what Crusader Kings 3 is about for me. Uh, In a game that ultimately went very well uh, as Ireland, uh, but this was in the earlier stages, I was High King Gabran of the uh, House Brian. And... I was in early middle age and I was having an issue where my heir, uh, for whatever reason, was not having children uh, with his wife. And this was going to be an issue because we were headed for a dynastic cliff, basically. Uh, You know, after 10 years, uh, my character didn't have a grandson. What was poised to happen was kind of a unraveling of my line of succession and probably everything defaulting uh to my brother who i would not say was wicked but you know perfectly fine uh noble so even though uh king gabran was a fairly shy and retiring person i decided that if my son would not produce an heir uh i would go and deal with that situation myself Oh, dear. And so (laughs) we're not even at the bad part yet. And so uh, I launched a seduction campaign against uh, or maybe on behalf of his wife. And it went pretty well, despite my king's uh, rather retiring demeanor. Uh, It turns out that reading uh, my daughter-in-law passages on the improvement of morals uh, just was a complete like way to her heart uh she loved that shit uh i dedicated a song to her at uh at at a feast and in no time at all uh we'd had an affair and then sometime later uh my son had an heir and the problem was solved that was great uh and then a few months later the my daughter-in-law was murdered to this day i don't know what happened game goes on ireland continues to expand ireland basically becomes scotland there's still a technical kingdom of scotland but i needed that kingdom to exist so that the title wasn't vacant look it was an entire succession thing scotland <laughs> needed to exist so ireland could thrive uh so time moves forward about 20 years pass in fact King Gibran is still going strong. My grandson, a.k.a. probably my son, is now the second heir. Uh, so once uh, my son dies, it'll be it'll be my secret bastard. He also gets married. Uh, about 
10 more years pass. King of Brands getting pretty old at this point. Still no heir. <laughs> and so once again, I had to do the deed for for my country. This is a movie, isn't it? Like, didn't this? It's, it's not good. It's not good. So isn't, there, isn't this the plot of a movie where he seduces like three generations of the same family or something? Oh. It's 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 something like that, I think. So now I've secured the line of succession. Basically, my sons are going to be running this place for the next next two generations. Uh, once again, the woman dies. Uh, this time of natural causes, but like I'm not sure you always know that if it's a successful plot. Uh, but nevertheless, my my king, my lecherous king, may also be kind of cursed because um, the the princesses he keeps romancing in his family uh, keep getting killed. Now, in the background of this, I've had this nobody in my court, Einmer, and every single person who joins my court launches a plot to kill Einmer. I don't know why. Everyone just wants this guy dead. Sometime later, I realize Einmer has worked his way into being one of my like a duke i don't know how this happened he must have like slept his way to the top or something but he got in into one of the lines of succession for my duchies got in there as duke and then my king toward the end of his life is restless he's got a guilty conscience probably from sleeping with his son and grandson's wives and getting them pregnant but <laughs> nevertheless uh he decides he must confess to somebody he has to talk to somebody duke einmer seems like a really sympathetic and uh kind person and so my king tells everything to this duke who for some reason everyone else at my court always had a vibe about and in no time at all uh einmer like this basically gives einmer a strong hook and this is how I end up setting the stage for a pretty nasty uh, civil war in Ireland as Einmer inevitably uh, called in that marker to try to basically get like independence as a vassal. Um, and then all hell broke loose. That's Crusader Kings. That's the sometimes <laughs> that is how it is. That is what it takes to be a king. That's what it takes to be a ruler. You have to do morally questionable things. But you're also still kind of a sad old man who decides about five minutes before he's going to die of old age that he needs to get all of this off to his <laughs> off his chest to basically a stranger. Well, and that destroys the kingdom. See, rookie move. You should have just confessed to a courtier and then killed them. I could. Could I have chosen to confess? <laughs> I don't know. I actually don't know how that event script works. Uh, yeah, but, this this uh, was just this was just my king being like, oh, I just feel so bad about all those seductions. I need oh, to, so I need it to wasn't, talk to somebody. It wasn't like a mental break thing. It was just he, for some reason, chose this random duke to be his his uh, confidant. It was a stress decision. Uh, okay, like there were okay. there were like there were stressors associated with not doing it. That's the thing. I didn't have to tell Einmer, but not telling Einmer would have caused the mental break. So, Got it. okay, yeah. So basically, I had a choice between, and, and Gibran had bad stress issues his whole life. So basically, I could have this guy stroke out 
or <laughs> I could have him tell Einmare. In retrospect, I probably should have just like taken the L and had Gibran just be like, oh, my heart, I just can't, I'm so stressed, and die. Uh, but instead, I was like, yeah, you know, Einmare seems cool. I'm sure this is fine. I don't know why everyone wanted him dead or how he became a Duke because I never heard of him until five minutes ago. But sure, I'm sure it's great. Yeah, not Let's suspicious go. at all. No, that sounds like a great person to to confide in. Uh, uh, Len, what is what is your yeah. Crusader Kings? What's your experience of of CK three? So it's almost like you know CK two was getting getting to this this point you know, to, to some degree, but CK3, I think, like, just having the 3D characters makes it a lot more, like, I'm just building these elaborate headcanons about all of these characters and about all of their relatives. I was trying to think of, like, a good specific story that I haven't already shared in, like, an article or something. Well, first um, of all, nobody on this pod, nobody listening to this podcast reads those. Yeah, that's true. Uh, nobody nobody reads. No, I mean, like, I, I haven't done anything quite as, uh, like, elaborately malicious as what you just described. Malicious? Well, I mean, your, son, your poor sons. I guess they never found out. So that emotional, da- you spared them from that emotional damage. But uh, The way Rob painted it is he, he's the hero. He saved the kingdom with his, yeah, uh, uh, with his yeah, leaven. Yeah, there's a lot briefly. of... The victors writing the history going on here. Uh, no, I, I definitely had a situation where I had... One, I, I had two daughters who were in line to inherit and like one of them I was in an equal inheritance succession realm because I, I tend to go for that pretty quick um, and uh, one of them was okay like she had high single digit lower tens teens sort of stats and like yeah I mean she'd be an okay queen but then you know she has a sister a younger sister who's just way better than her in in pretty much every way just like amazing stats across the board and i didn't have enough intrigue and like i didn't have a very good spy master so like i was probably gonna get caught if i tried to assassinate her so i just forced her to always be a commander even though she only had like a six prowess or something (laughs) and then forbid her sister from ever being or not a commander a knight um, and then just would would throw her specifically into to battles that I knew were going to be very bloody and violent. And she eventually got maimed and died of her injuries. So, you know, there's ways to get rid of uh, an heir that is troublesome other than, uh, you know, trying to sneak a snake into their bed. So you um, took some poor girl. Yeah. And uh-huh. was like, you are a Joan of Arc. Yeah. Here's a hundred dudes. I mean, she was like Go. shitty Joan of Arc because like her, yeah. her, yeah, her diplomacy was only like a seven. So she wasn't really going to be inspiring the, you know, the French people to uh, deeds of great valor. It was just more like, uh, yeah, you know, how, how'd you like to just be in the front line at all times uh, and possibly pick some fights that I wouldn't pick otherwise, unless I was specifically trying to get someone in this army killed. Um because I think it does partly have to do with like how even the battle is and like how good the knights on the other side are. So, yeah. Um, so yeah. you let so you let the god of war uh, sort of prune the the tree of succession. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. it's it's an effective strategy, and you know they'll be remembered uh, by the poets as probably more heroic and competent than they were. You know, they get they get that hero's death. They get that line in the history. Book, Suddenly so. she's Custer. Yeah. You know, yeah. so it's it's not that bad of a deal. You know, it's just you don't get to rule the kingdom. That, and also you don't get to live. Uh, but, you know, small price to pay, I would say. Yeah. 
<laughs> Rowan, <laughs> I am very curious. What's Crusader Kings three? Um, I don't actually know that I have the world's greatest stories. It seemed like I was building them as I was playing, but I don't actually like remember them. I think I think what Liana said about like building these ideas about your characters is like really strong here. Like I have, you know, this one duchess or queen that ruled my kingdom for like 60 years and just like destroyed everything in her path and uh, was absolutely amazing at, uh, uh, you know, queening. Um, but was there a specific story with her? I don't really know. Uh, it, all the things that I think about in terms of like the wild Crusader King stories are mechanical, almost like it's EU4, not uh, not Crusader Kings. Huh. Um, and that's... Uh, so the one that I think of, the, the one that kind of defined how I played was uh, I, my, main, my main campaign, I started as the Duke of Aquitaine and uh, built up from there. Um, and... Uh, I started in 867, which is really Catholicism under siege. Do the Catholicism under siege. Uh, <laughs> Just as it is today since Vatican II. Mm -hmm, exactly. <laughs> um, sorry. <laughs> I didn't but, mean to go. Sorry, <laughs> apologies to our Tradcap friends. I, sure. I, appreci I appreciated that reference. Stay <laughs> weird, folks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, like, uh, you know, Germany gets invaded a couple times by the Norse, the, uh, uh, as does northern France. The England is, like, turned into a battleground between the Norse and the Muslim Spanish. Uh, the Byzantines are great, but they're only, you know, partially Catholic. Uh, so, like, it ends up that basically southern France... And Hungary and Italy are the only places that Catholicism is still thriving. So I'm still, I am like slowly over the course of this game becoming like the embodiment of, you know, the Catholic warrior defending the faith against all comers. Um, and that actually was pretty interesting for a while until I just, you know, succeeded and got too big. But, uh, I actually had like a divergent timeline in my game where I have this, I think a Duke who is like on the verge of forming the kingdom of Aquitaine where things are going to actually be like, uh, be stable enough to, uh, you know, have succession, not destroy the entire, the entire thing that I have built. So he's like on the verge of this and all he has left are daughters or granddaughters or whatever. There's there's no male heirs to the throne anywhere. And that's fine. I've like arranged matrilineal marriages. I'm okay with this. But uh, he has like two or three, uh, two or three daughters. And then there's like a grand niece somewhere who suddenly becomes the heir to the throne of East Francia. Uh, which is basically like a three county kingdom at this point. I have like through random succession bullshit just managed to become like one of those counties. Uh, and so she is an option. And because like my family is the dominant uh, family in anything that's not Italy for Catholicism, 
uh, they they're like, oh, we have to get the Poitou's in it as our king. But they choose this like five year old girl instead of any of the women who are supposed to become like the heirs to my actual powerful duchies that have everything that I built up economically and all this. And then my Duke immediately dies. And for whatever reason, the game decides that I would prefer to play the five-year-old with the kingdom and only one county that seems to be chosen entirely at random uh, versus the woman that I have set up as my heir to all of like my core duchies. Um, because I am now a kingdom of East Francia, all those duchesses uh, are now in charge. I don't know what happened to this girl's mother. I think I think she might have died already. So I have like two or three aunts who have all the power, all the money, all the troops uh, who are basically running the country. And this five-year-old girl who I have to kind of rebuild an economic system from scratch again without actually having to build the country up from scratch. I can like... <clears throat> I can like defend the country okay, but I don't actually have my own levies if anything goes wrong internally. Oh, and Lord. so like two or three hundred years into the game, I'm back to a single county ruler, except that this is a queen. So it's like I can't actually like dive into someone else's kingdom, say, can I be your vassal, please? The you know, the Muslims are at my gates. Um I'm just kind of stuck with this pathetic girl and like I actually have a run of like 30 40 years of like getting two or three more counties building up economically not having the the invasions or crusade or not crusades uh, holy wars take out the entirety of East Francia which is still actually southern France uh, and that was like that was the point of the game where I had that like Crusader Kings 2 kind of, oh my god, everything is happening at once. This is so terrible. But it was caused by this really weird succession thing where, again, I don't know how this girl ended up with the county she ended up with. Um, and then, you know, later I found out that you can press escape and switch rulers of your dynasty. And uh, I could have just chosen, you know, the actual oldest daughter that I had been planning on doing things around and uh, switched to her and, you know, destroyed the throne of East Francia or ignored it or whatever. Um, but uh, that was that was reasonably fun. But then I think uh, Hispa Hispaniola just decided to invade uh, the entirety of southern France. And I had literally no capability for defending against, like, the entirety of Muslim Spain. And uh, that was the end of that run. And then I looked at my saved games... And noticed that, like, when you become a different, uh, when you take on a different title, even if you're in an Iron Man mode, uh, it still has the old saved game. Uh, so I could actually go back to being the Duke of Aquitaine. I could not go back to anywhere else in the East Francia game. Uh, so I actually reloaded, had that Duke run through things and, you know, live the last 15, 20 years of his life. And the East Francia thing never came up again. I formed the Kingdom of Aquitaine. I formed uh, the Kingdom of France. I formed the Empire of Francia and saved all of Catholicism and reunited it, reunited the churches and uh, had a hundred years to spare with like a third of the map painted blue. And that was a neat thing to have done, but it was uh, 
just very strange that like one little quirk of the code could actually ruin my game or make the game more fun slash make it more difficult versus continue on this like march to inevitable domination of the continent yeah the the way that like having a top level realm with elective succession interacts with partition is can can do some very weird things like that um it like to the point that i would kind of recommend people don't play in elective realm <laughs> In 867, at least, like, uh, I, I assume that, that, that it'll get cleaned up at some point. But yeah, uh, I didn't have a choice. They just, they, they just gave me the crowd and suddenly I right. was just Francia. Yeah, and, and yeah, I do heavily endorse character switching in this game. The one thing you won't keep is your men-at-arms. You'll have to start over on that. But you, as long as you stay within the same dynasty, you keep all your dynasty prestige. So it's like, yeah, I don't. I don't have any affection for the purity of the Crusader King's experience that I must always cleave to whatever it decides the player heir is. Um, sometimes I'll even just abandon a dynasty if I don't, if I'm not having fun with it anymore. But uh, I, I mean, yeah. I honestly like the game abandoned the purity of the Crusader King's experience. <laughs> I had set things up for my daughter. And then this random child walks in and says, oh, I'm the queen. And uh, then all of a sudden she has these evil ants who are the people I was preparing for, which I guess is a nice little Crusader Kings thing. Yeah, but yeah it was it felt it felt like I was having some level of agency pulled away from me. Well, at, uh, the, at the very least, when you inherit, if you inherit under elective succession as a queen like that, you should still keep whatever your previous character's capital county was. Like, that's the yeah. hard line in the sand that I draw, because I might have put thousands of gold into that one county. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. They actually gave her, like, a religious spot. I think it was Rems. Yeah. Um, so, which possibly because, like, that is the one that you can just move into. You're not t knocking a dynasty out. You're knocking a bishop out. Oh. But that's not actually a county that you're supposed to be ruling. So I was trying to figure out how to change the county seat away from the uh the church because i kept getting error messages saying that this was messing me up i don't know what actual penalties i was having but it was i don't know it was yeah. it was it was a mess that um yeah i i could talk about this more later but i feel like there's something about this game that makes the rigidity of its succession uh feel a lot stronger than ck2 hmm. in a way that i kind of dislike Fraser, it's your turn. What, oh, yeah. Uh, do, you, do you have a moment that illustrates what is CK3? See, uh, it was it was funny hearing the talk of kind of the uh, chaos ensuing from the strange succession, because succession does seem to be at the heart of a lot of the, the chaos in, in CK3. Um, I had uh, a very interesting uh, monarch who had had quite a blessed life he forged, I feel like I keep uh, hearing quotes around everything you're saying. I had an interesting <laughs> monarch uh, who one could say was blessed. Um, he, he'd forged a, a, a kingdom in Italy. He was a Viking fella. Um, he was doing well, uh, completely eradicated Catholicism from that part of the world, plunked his arse down in the Vatican, uh, having a good old time and things things were were looking up. Uh, 
but it looked like his incredibly stupid brother was going to be next in line to get the throne when he popped his clogs. And I couldn't have that because this guy was just a garbage human being. Vices, no skills. It was amazing that anyone really wanted him to be heir because he was just so awful. Um, but that was that was who the uh, electors were, were, were picking. Yeah. Um, and obviously I wanted it to be my my son uh who i'd been grooming but usually they don't like that to happen they're looking for someone slightly more distant to break up the power um and i didn't have time to faff around trying to bring everyone over to my side with bribes and hooks and all this other stuff so i just decided i'm going to kill my dumb brother um now, up until this point, I'd been really well behaved. I'd just been consolidating my power, expanding the realm, but not really being a horrible person, not assassinating anyone or having affairs. I'd been a good boy. Um, but I needed to secure the my legacy. Um, so I plotted away, and it wasn't too difficult. I had a pretty decent entry skill. I had um, a spouse that was very sneaky, which helped. Um, and I did maybe sleep with a few people uh, that were close to him to get even closer. And then I think it was either like a spider or a snake. Some animal was involved and it killed him. That's who's to blame. Not me. My hands were clean. It's just a freak accident. Spiders are always killing people in Italy constantly. Um, <laughs> so I got away with it. It was it was great. And actually, um, uh, my son did then become my heir. Uh, and things kind of settled back down. Um, fast forward like a decade, um, I'm getting pretty long in the tooth and I'm now down one son because all of my sons, it, as it happened, were really good in a fight. And I was still kind of expanding my realm. I was trying to get oh, no. tough enough to, to take on uh, the Byzantine Empire. We were both Orthodox, and I wanted to be, like, top Orthodox dog. Um, and so my son died in battle. He was really good, but I just, like, threw him into the fray one too many times, and CK3 decided to teach me a lesson. So this this kid, or the, this grown man, died in battle. Uh, and I, I, all that, like, I murdered my bloody brother to ensure that he would become the next in the line to the throne. And it was all for nothing. But I kind of just, you know, dust myself off. Okay, I've got a bunch of other sons. They're good. I'll work on making sure one of them is the heir. I, you know, cheered myself up thinking I can salvage this. Um, in the next five years, two more sons die because I've not learned my lesson, it turns out. And as I said, I'm in a lot of wars and I like sending them into these wars because they're really competent, but not competent enough to, to live. Um, so they're dead. And I'm thinking, right, now things are getting kind of bad. I have one more son left. The worst son, the son I've been protecting, is the one that I could have happily gotten rid of. Uh so he's he's still around. Maybe I can just do something about it. Maybe I can improve him in some way. But it's too late to think about that because my other brother, the one I didn't kill, appears one day and goes, I know what you did like 20 years ago. <laughs> uh, he finds out like that I, I murdered my my uh, 
my brother, our brother, and he uses it to try and get me to lower my crown authority, um, easing up on, on my vassals, basically, which would mean fewer taxes, fewer levies, just less control over like where if they can go to war or not. I'd been working on building up my authority, so like this was a big no. I'm like, fuck you. See, let's see what happens if you tell everyone that I did this awful thing. Um, and then he did it, and everyone was really angry with me. Uh, <laughs> pretty much most of my vassals were like disgusted with me, infuriated with me, and uh, it didn't take long for uh, a faction to appear that wanted to put my other brother on the throne. Um, and I wouldn't back down. There was a huge war. Uh, at this point, I'm something like 78. Um, I send my king into battle against the the warring faction. Um, we have like a lot more troops. Um, but again, I've just sent a 78-year-old man into war. Uh, he doesn't exit that battle. Uh, he dies. Um, and in the end, my older brother, or sorry, my other brother, uh, becomes the, the next king. But my kingdom is split into three separate kingdoms now. Um, just this whole mess. Wait, you had three that, kingdom titles? Yeah. It'd be, oh, I, no. yeah. So it, I know. you had like a garbage Charlemagne situation? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so like, it would be fine while the king was alive, obviously, but I'd be desperately trying to like consolidate power. I was like, were, I was like, maybe I'd like an empire one day. Well, with three <laughs> kingdoms, you needed one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I was gunning for that. But again, I had this old monarch. So he dies. The kingdoms get split up into three. Um, and so I'm, I think that th at that point, I then played my brother, which like stung a bit because I'm like, this fucker's the cause of all this. And he didn't even get what he wanted. He's only got one out of three kingdoms. Um, Did he have a and claim it was on the like, Yes, so it, then a new war started. <laughs> it was like years and years <laughs> of war. Um, and the thing is, it would have been so much simpler if I just not killed my dumb brother in the first place. Because um, I was worried, like, you know, that, like, this, that, like, you know, kings can die in, a, at any age. So I wanted to make sure I at least had an heir sorted out. Um, and then I outlived all of them. <laughs> But yeah, it was a big clusterfuck, and I loved it. Um, <laughs> it was barely salvageable. By the end, like, my so many of my dynasty members were killed. The next, like, 20 years, it was, like, awful. So many deaths. <laughs> like, entire, like, cadet branches as well, like, in that space of time, were wiped out. Um, because people were just bringing in more and more people to the fight. It, it was a horrible mess. Uh, wouldn't change a thing. <laughs> <laughs> so this this sounds a lot like uh like Iceland in the nine hundreds. <laughs> like just gonna one 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 event is going to lead to like a cycle of vengeance that just wipes out the entire family. I like I like <laughs> it. Yeah, yeah. That's how a lot of my succession stories uh, definitely <laughs> went. Like eventually, like there's a point in Crusader Kings three uh, in a number of different games where it just seemed like my kingdom was in a cycle of just bloody purges at every new regime 
Uh, and so I, I like, I started like basically falling behind, uh, because I would start, I would stop investing in, uh, my kingdom really early, just building up a war chest. Cause I'm like, well, gonna, gonna be dead in about 30 years. Probably better start saving for mercenaries <laughs> now, uh, was, was kind of my, my approach. Um, then Gita told me that I should really have people at feasts more often. Uh, and that does that does help with the old succession crisis, uh, or at least the domestic opinion uh, crisis. But those those realm splits, they're they're brutal. And uh, I do find them easiest to solve with just immediate like declaration of war, especially if there's children uh, where it's like, <laughs> you know, one of the. <laughs> Especially if there's children. The children have to get bloodied early. Yeah. They gotta know. Yeah. How else are they gonna learn discipline? Look, you're yeah. a nine-year-old duke. You won't even yeah. remember this happened. You will not even remember the time no. your uncle came and slaughtered your dad and uh seized your your lands. Uh this is all gonna be like a bad dream. You don't even need to worry about it. Uh and then when that child grows up, they'll be an obedient little duke. Uh, and they'll know their place and we can we sort of kick the can down the road uh, for another 40 years until it has to happen again with my children um, and that who is... else ruled kingdoms where the forest must have just been littered with little corpses because almost every like murder plot against a kid is why don't we just leave it in the forest and a bear will eat it yeah yeah i've <laughs> seen it that often works yeah <laughs> it's just let's drop a kid off here leave it just let nature take his course <laughs> yeah just go, just go a little farther uh yeah if um look if, if a child can't navigate uh backcountry wilderness uh back to back to the castle then do they have any business ruling those lands uh one one, one could say <laughs> Uh, they're they're not. Jo really we're just fit. asking questions here. We're just asking questions. The lands yeah. have chosen. <laughs> the lands have chosen who they would wish, who who is worthy to rule, and it is not this child. Yeah, uh, we abandoned in in the taiga. Uh, so it sounds like we're all pretty high on the game. Uh, and I am I for like so I'm actually not surprised that uh. You know, you you know, you are uh, Liana. I'm <laughs> not surprised whether that that you were uh, Fraser, but I think the thing that took me aback was I am somebody who, when it came to CK two, it might have been somewhere in all the expansions, but there was just a point where like it just felt like a really hostile experience, just from a standpoint of like tracking things down and keeping the game state in my head and like finding information and like knowing the rules it was really difficult to stay literate in crusader kings 2 um and crusader kings 3 the thing that has surprised me the most is now how easily i am just able to dive all the way into the kind of narrative narrative adventures that i think were always one of the selling points of like ck2 uh, and now without like a lot of struggle uh, to to master the game and figure out what's happening, I'm now just living out these medieval adventures uh, rather than struggling against a maybe overly 
modified interface or, or game design to to extract uh, the 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 core uh, of the experience. So there is a thing that has been happening in game user interfaces in the past few years that CK3 is like embodying, and that's like these nested tool tips. You just hover the mouse over whatever the word is. It gets you to where you want to go. Uh, and, you know, you could just keep doing that. And it gets easier and easier. And you, the information is there when you want it. And the first game I remember seeing these kinds of things in was Tyranny, which was Paradox published. And now CK3 is like the new queen of this kind of interface availability and i'm just sitting here thinking holy shit there is a paradox interface innovation that is largely considered overwhelmingly positive paradox (laughs) well (laughs) imagine going to somebody 10 years ago and saying hey this company here creators of you know hearts of iron 3 EU3, Victoria 2, these people are really making user experiences better. They figured it out. <laughs> it just solves so many problems, doesn't it? I mean, because one of the issues is like when you get a tooltip, you don't want a massive wall of text. You want like you want a quick fix. You want to know what's going on. But you can't really get that from a brief tooltip. So that's why with the, the nested tooltips, you get more context the more things you click on. You decide how much information you want to take in at that moment. And it can take you to like new things. Like It'll teach you things you didn't need to know or you didn't think you needed to know. Um, it takes you on this little journey as your screen fills up with tooltips. Um, but the fact that you have all this kind of control over how much um, hand-holding you want um, without having to go into the menu and be like, I want this amount of tooltips or I want this amount of tutorials. It's just, here's all this information. You control how you get it, when you get it. It's fantastic. Yeah, I, I mean, there's that's that's like a, a metadata. Like, that's... There's just interface stuff all over this game that is genuinely great. Like the way that the map works. Yeah. Where you, by default, when you scroll in, it goes all the way. When you scroll in all the way, it goes to like the terrain map. So you're if you're moving armies around, you can see where the forests and the mountains are or the plains if you want to try to have an open battle. Or um, you scroll out a little bit and you can see like your kingdom um and all the kingdoms around you and then you scroll out all the way uh, or you see like all the internal politics of your kingdom and then also the kingdoms around you uh and then you scroll out further and it's your kingdom just like as a whole uh and like it's you know this is where i want to be using the the map when i am looking at these things like it's a natural uh, a natural state of how to be playing the game. The only time I switch the map mode is to get to the religions. Uh, that's like astonishing for those of us who have been playing paradox games where we expect to be, you know, constantly switching map modes or we just find the one that is the least worst and stick with it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's I, weird rarely having to click on those buttons anymore because it just knows what I want to see depending on where I'm looking. Um, yeah, and it's gorgeous. Absolutely. That's, that's yeah. also useful. Well, and, the, well, that's one of the cool things is that actually it's like 
seeing terrain now is so much more important because the game is or the map is so less abstract like there's loads of terrain now like this this actual like the zoomed in version of the map where you're just looking at each region is like way more important way more expanded there's so many there's more terrain types within each small area yeah like, there's like it's an actual proper tactical like campaign map well, and the and the character models and you know the animations and the the, the backgrounds and the lighting and everything too. Like it's not yes. just it's not just a nice thing to look at. Like I think it very much does assist in what Rob is saying, which is just keeping everything that's going on in your head. Because it it was kind of hard for me to form relationships with and remember who these little kind of generic looking portraits in CK two were. Like a lot of them look the same. Uh, you know, you'd, you'd have like five identical Vikings and like two of them are named Ivar and you have to remember, okay, that which, which Ivar is this? Um, like it, I really do. It connects with my, my brain and with my ability to like keep track of things so much better to have these fully 3d character portraits. And, and I, I think just aside from being eye candy, I think that I, I really can't overstate how much of an aid that is to building stories in my head and keeping the affairs of the kingdom straight. Yeah. <laughs> just to, just to say one thing to that, uh, Liana, that was always, I think honestly it was the portraits thing that confused me the most because <laughs> what I, I do not do the best with, um, writ, like <sighs> retaining new information in some yeah. ways. Like I have yeah. to work with material for a little while for it to, to stick a little bit. And so I think my experience of playing Crusader Kings 2 a lot of times was like a bit like when somebody just tells you their phone number and you're trying yeah. to repeat it back in your head. And so, yes, a lot of my experience with CK2 was like, okay, uh, that's Duke, Duke Charles of Moray. Uh, he is the one who's married to. And like I would just sort of repeat that information and then I would forget what I was doing and I would loop back and like, do yeah. I hate this guy? Do I love this guy? Is this the same <laughs> dude or is this his son? I thought he was an old guy. Or is that yeah. somebody else? And here, like, I do, uh, if I'm playing, like, usually I am playing a little bit slower, too, because I think this is a this is a, this is a dense game in terms of, like, things happening over the course of a, of a ruler's life. And so I think with each generation, it feels a bit like a season of television for me, where I'm like, these are the, this is the cast of characters that I'm dealing with. Oh, it's that fucking guy. And I know it's that guy <laughs> because like his wife's got the horrible pox and like, he's missing an arm because say what you will, he's a good warrior and he did his duty for the crown, but he's a prick. Uh, and uh -huh. like, so these are characters I know. And so even if I may not even know for sure, like where, where are their holdings again? I won't always know that. I just know they're a powerful noble, right? I just haven't looked it up in a while. It doesn't matter. I just know that, like, these people fucking hate me, and if it goes bad, <laughs> they can come for me and cause problems. Uh, and that's been such a relief, like, having the sense of, oh, here's the ensemble for my game, as opposed to here's 20 or 30 really similar-looking pixel portraits yeah, uh, to, to keep track of. Well, and you're seeing them more often, too, because they show up in the events, you know, yeah. and yeah, it's it's I love the exaggerated poses so much yeah. as well. Like, can you, like uh, in my mind, I think of them as actually really hi like highly animated, but they're not. The animations are like very subtle. They're mostly static, to be honest. But like there are 
like just exaggerated poses and expressions that stand out all the time. Uh, it just like it's not even just the the sexy saucy ones. It's like it could be just someone looking incredibly grumpy about the seventeenth affair you just had. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Go on. The, I like the the like I'm sorry one where they're like hunched over <laughs> and all pouty. Yes. It's very Sims actually. Like like I know like there's a lot of similarities with the Sims even more so than in in two. But I do think the the sort of caricature style that they've gone for with the the portraits uh, is very like Maxis. So, I think there are also some unintended consequences here. To go back to what Rob was saying like how the interface gives you the information that you need instead of forcing you to hunt for it. Uh, this is good. It helps you get into the game. It makes it like, you know, figuring out how to get people who had claims on interesting counties in CK2 was a very, very different process from how it works in CK3, where it basically says, here are some people with interesting claims. Yeah. You want them? send some money to him where ck2 it was this whole thing where it's like you click on the county you click on the who owns the county then you click on like other people with claims then you say like okay which one of these people can i invite to my court You're basically and i would just like calling for claims right like <laughs> hey mama you got claims hey baby you got some claims what you show me what you're working with <laughs> oh. <laughs> See, this that is, is game where i don't feel like countryside you can... yeah Oh, like, what? Can, your, your uncle took your dad's lands? To yeah. So, so like, because of this, it actually becomes super easy to find people with claims and then declare wars based on those claims. Because there's also a thing that tells you what wars you can declare on who. Just right there. You don't have to click on all your neighbors to see who you can actually declare war on. Um, I mean, you can obviously keep that in your head at times if you're playing CK2. But it was still a bit of a process, but because this just tells you, hey, knock out a war. You could you could fuck this guy up in the next 10 minutes. It's fine. It's fine. Um, because of that, there's just this kind of feeling that the game has put you on like a, a, a roller coaster where you you can make these choices and get bigger and it just kind of happens super easily and naturally in a way that ck2 didn't have which makes ck2 and there are some other things in here but it makes it feel it's both smooth which is really good but also easy which is sometimes good and sometimes less good um I don't know that there's been like a counterbalance to adding some friction to the game that uh, that makes it so that uh, the aspects of CK2 that were difficult, even if it was an arbitrary interface-based difficulty, uh, have actually had new things added in place. And in fact, some of them got taken out. Uh, RIP Conclave, That was that's my most missed part yeah, of CK2. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, there's 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 this feeling that the game has been set up for you to succeed. That's very nice, but also a bit iffy to keep playing. Yeah, it is. I mean, it is too. I do think it's too easy right now. Um, but of course, I'm someone that has like over 2000 hours in Crusader Kings, too. So I'm not sure <laughs> that might be something that needs to be solved by a game option, because like I think people who aren't as experienced as, as us like 
might find the difficulty level very appropriate. Um, I mean, it depends on what you mean by difficulty, though, right? Like, are you saying, like, you're having more disastrous runs or, like, is it an accessibility thing? Like, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, another thing that's that's similar to what Rowan was talking about is marriage alliances. I don't think that they work that much differently than they did in CK2, but I feel like they're more reliable now. There's Mm -hmm. less, like, weird code blocks on, like, why isn't... I don't understand why this guy isn't joining my war okay, whatever, uh, like, it's so much easier to find good alliances, to quickly see how many troops they have, figure out what you need to do to make that marriage work, and then you almost never run into a situation where someone's just like, well, I'm just not going to join your war because of, I don't know, some uh, five minus, uh, there, there's like five negative marks on my uh, calculus for whether I should join this war, and we're not going to explain to you what that means. Uh, but that's like that, that would be like shitty. Like, yeah, I wouldn't yeah, want yeah. that to come back. Like, <laughs> right? No, I wouldn't either. Yeah, but but I totally get this. So and, I think there's how much. First of all, just to that objection though specifically, how much of this is also you internalize the logic of AIs, AI allies in paradox games traditionally just fucking suck. Like yeah. that you just in, you just oh. I'm yeah. going to forge this alliance, but unless we share a land border, I know that that's worth absolutely nothing. This person is never <laughs> going to help. I'm basically just doing this for the prestige, but God help me if I run into trouble because I am on my own. And like in, key, in CK3, allies actually show up with armies. And the first time that happened, I was like, holy shit. They sailed across yeah. the sea <laughs> to help <laughs> me all the way across the world. They'll take years and years to get there, maybe, but uh, they'll they'll show up. They're really weirdly reliable, actually. Yeah, love I, my but I friends. think that is to I the point. Deserve them. Yeah, yeah but, I, but I think that is also to the point, though, that like maybe uh, they are too reliable because like I do sometimes it is a little weird to me that like some shit I started in the Mediterranean will bring in like an army like a massive army uh from like scandinavia somewhere you know yeah like, that, like there's but no see, interest if they're dealing with some other stuff like if they've got another war on or they're dealing with rebellions or they're just a bit poor and um, they're like there will be mitigating circumstances where they might not they might send like a token army of like 200 dudes uh but that's it um, so even though they're like, I, they are, they definitely feel so much more reliable than two. They're not always going to show up with like a life-saving army. Yeah, but they are significantly more predictable, and that's kind of. That, I guess that's what I'm. That's that's a good word for what I'm saying is that this this game has had some of those interface quirks and some other aspects of the game. The big one I'll talk about in a second uh, smoothed out so that it is much more predictable and i think i have seen that like even new players are finding it fairly easy to to snowball um the big thing that i think is causing this is that fabricating claims now Mm -hmm. which is the number one best way to get more land is now a predictable automatic thing where you send your religious dude and it takes like four years or nine years or whatever and eventually you will have that claim for some money and then you go into debt for the money and then your wife gives you 40 gold out of nowhere and all of a sudden it's fine (laughs) uh so like now that that aspect of the game that one tiny little aspect of the game is 
a predictable thing that you can do. You always have the ability to grab more land. And this creates like this unintentional set of consequences that kind of go through the entire game where it is much, much easier to be a map painter. And you can do that like at the level that you understand and can make work uh, in a way that CK2 did not have. Mm. Um, and that's that lowers the amount of chaos that I think are, is in the game. And like, we're talking about all our stories, right? All our stories involve this chaos, these chaotic things that are really interesting that happened. But I found this game like exceptionally easy to avoid chaos with. I never had a character get above level one of stress. Anytime they did, I just poured them some drinks, whatever. But then they become and, an alcoholic and then you have to deal with the, the fallout from that. They might die earlier. They might have other complications. Oh, oh sure. You know, I, I, I am aware of the potential issues of like treating your stress with alcohol. But, um, <laughs> but in terms of playing the game, like it, I never actually saw like level two of stress, let alone level three. I never had a full breakdown. Um, I think it's it's about uh, like I guess if you're gunning for not being stressed then and you're focusing on keeping everything calm then it's not too difficult to avoid but you might get in lots of situations or just from like a role-playing perspective where like actually stress makes sense yeah, yeah and, it, and it's, you know maybe there are ways that I could lean into that when I am playing and figure out you know what my characters are but I also feel like the game is kind of designed to have those characters like get channeled into those roles um yeah and that's really good that's really neat it's just you can stick with that pretty easily uh yeah there's another one that kind of bugs me and that is uh uh, when like one of the options for relieving stress is to change your entire religion to a heresy <laughs> instead of <laughs> instead of just being like in secret you worship kind of differently like it's just like oh now suddenly you're the naked heresy no, hold on uh, that's real like that's just self-help like this is <laughs> let me like this is somebody who's like deep in crisis who's like let me tell you what worked for me uh, you ever think that maybe Christ just continu- is continually reincarnated, uh, and maybe I'm him? I'd like I'm with that. That that's a good approach. I love it. Well, well, I, yeah, I well, you know, I was I was tweeting about putting the dysphoria mod up there where uh, yes, you get if you're melancholy enough and you get to level three, you might just say you're a different gender. That's that's really uh, yeah, that's really how it works. Uh, um, but yeah, like. I don't know. It seems like there are all these little things that combine to make the experience go down this track that's really fun and really cool that all of a sudden you're at empire level and like there's not much more in the game to do other than try to make sure you don't have a civil war. Well, yeah, I, well, let me let me tell you about the campaign I'm playing right now briefly because I'm playing in Nepal and I have about seven counties and i'm a little less than a hundred years in and basically what i have determined is that yes if i am playing this optimally as like a strategy game where i am really trying to succeed and have you know do all of this like eugenics we're all going to be tall beautiful giants whatever like like have all the best alliances and like just grow my kingdom to as powerful and amazing as it can possibly be I am eventually going to 
stop having fun. And that is an issue, but I have found that I can put some like fairly like non-restrictive uh for me at least rules on myself that actually allow Crusader Kings 3 to be a lot more of the game that I feel like it should be and wants to be. Like I can't fabricate claims while I'm in debt. Um every time I fabricate a claim, I have to do something else with my with my uh bishop after that like like convert a county or something. And like you know, I'm I'm hamstringing myself, but it makes the game way more fun and like it's actually the way I would encourage people to play it. And like yes. even if I get an event, like just encouraging myself, pick the option that's going to create more drama. Don't pick the option that's good for the kingdom, pick the option that's going to create more drama. And just doing that really makes it a lot more fun experience. That's an interesting this is something I hadn't considered because I think for me I've been delighted by how much Rowan, I think earlier you said it's a like frictionless. Um yeah. and I've been delighted by that. But it does occur to me that like it has made it in some ways a lot like munching on like really tasty snack food. Uh and there's not a lot to stop me from just kind of doing whatever I want. And I will say some of the more interesting stories might be me more just like pressing like just leaning into a weird character that i've stumbled into like look king G garan didn't need to fuck that second uh like daughter <laughs> like just didn't need to didn't need what, to do what's um once you've got the taste though <laughs> yeah, exactly i was kind of like he was like <laughs> you know oh, that was kind of yeah. fun i'll bet he was gonna he'll do it again yeah. Uh, I did like there was no real good reason to do that because I could have just let my heir succeed and then like handled the um you know done a romance my wife or something as my heir and it would have been fine. Uh, I didn't need to do it. I was just like oh, this would be hilarious, uh, and it was kind of creepy and weird. But you were um, role playing. I mean that's that's ultimately like you chose not necessarily the the best strategy, but the right. most authentic role playing yeah. uh, path. But I, but I do think. But I but I agree though that there. There is an element of um, if I hadn't done that, right? Like, would the game the, like I was still on a trajectory to continue expanding and basically taking over the the British Isles, um, and maybe that first affair was useful just because I really did need to shore up my succession line at that point. But after that, this was a decision that didn't really like make a lot of. Uh, sense from a strategic standpoint but if i didn't do it then yeah i could see like most of king brand's life was kind of repetitive of like okay fabricate claim quick war and because there were enough little small uh duchies nearby i could just keep nibbling bits and pieces of uh wales and england and scotland it was it was great but yeah, there there wasn't a lot of uh, friction to that experience. It was, it was very repetitive. So I'm, I, I guess I, I what I'm curious to get into though is, I am somebody who clearly like bounced off that uh, higher level CK two play from like late in that game's life, uh, and I'm curious like what has been lost in the frictionlessness of CK three that like CK2 would just kind of generate naturally that isn't just stuff like AI enemy allies just sucked in that game. Uh, what's like, what's, what's that good friction that we're losing here? I, I'm not sure if it's like, 
I'm not sure if it's something that's been lost. I think it's more that it's been refocused. So like the number one crisis that you would have in CK2 is having a woman heir in a non-matrilineal marriage, in a patriarchal marriage. Um, if that happens, then you have to desperately figure out some way to make sure that you can change the laws so that you can get an heir from your family or else the game just ends. So that was like, once you got a decent hold of how CK2 worked, that was the number one crisis moment uh, that could happen and would happen pretty regularly. Um, and that's not actually present in CK3 anymore. Uh, but that is like a weird thing where it's just like, here's how the succession laws kind of work. Now you have to sort of invent a story as to why you are creating, you know, this other crisis to get an elective monarchy or whatever in order to have the game logic allow you to continue. So CK3 kind of boots that down a few steps. The game logic is still present. It's still making you make weird decisions that kind of go against how you would normally play. They're just a little bit more submerged now. Um, so like when I talk about how the succession crisis happened with my character who randomly became a king or a queen, uh, like that was just suddenly the game made this decision about how succession happened to work and my game continued like i was going to be able to continue playing at some level it was just not really the game that i was actually having fun with once i had once i started realizing the full consequences of what had happened uh it, it was moderately fun for a little bit but then like i just knew i was going to be invaded and be destroyed uh, and that was happening. I don't remember if I, how far the invasion got. I think I quit when the, the Spanish declared war, but, um, there was, there was still this point where the actual like internal game logic said succession works this way. You have to work with that or else the game dies. And it just got punted a bit further down the road in ways that like, it's not so much what we're losing from CK2, it's that CK3 has these quirks in a different way. Um, when I was talking about like how these religions works and converting to a heresy, it's like suddenly you say, oh, I'm an Adamite. Oh, I'm a Waldensian. Instead of being like, I don't know if the Pope is like totally all right. There's just like this game logic that says as soon as you start to question the Pope, you are just suddenly this other thing. And now you have these stories that develop from this other thing, and that can be fun and neat and all, uh, but it feels very arbitrary in a way that reminds me of kind of the way that CK2's interface and stories were also arbitrary. Um, the other thing is like succession. I had, and I bet you all had, situations where you're a king, you have multiple sons. Your first son grows up. He becomes a pretty cool knight. You stick him into battle. You get him married. Uh, he has a kid. Eventually he dies. The kid is now considered the heir by everybody. As opposed to the second son is like, hey, what the fuck? I am an adult. I am not a two-year-old baby. I should probably <laughs> be king. Uh, yeah. I, and the, the, game, the game just like has these specific logic things that 
kind of actually move against the way that it's creating the stories or moving against the way that history would have worked. Because this is like one of the big crises throughout medieval history is if you have like the grandson versus the uncle, uh, you know, that's why the, the troubles happened in England. Uh, well, and, and we talked a little bit about this on uh, on another Discord that I, I feel like it kind of handles that through factions. It's just that instead of having this discussion about who's going to be king, you will either have a faction press a demand or go to war to be like, I'm the uncle, I should be king. Little boy, do you want to just let me be king or do we have to fight about it? But I definitely agree that on my wish list for future DLC would be something like a a, a regency council where you have to kind of debate and barter about who the actual next king is going to be and hopefully not have one side walk away from the table and decide to start a war over it. Yeah, these things were not decided in the time span of CK3. Like, these were things that were negotiated and bartered uh, throughout history. Like, Elizabeth's heir was something that there was, like, a secret council of people that decided, okay, we got to make James the king uh, because she's not, like, saying publicly who it is. There's no there's no specific law. Everything is just kind of a mess here. This guy has a good claim, and we think he'll be able to handle the throne. Uh, and then, like, it's after that time period where things start becoming kind of more set in stone. But, yeah, this is, this is getting into the Renaissance before these become strict rules. Like, these were things that were negotiated. And I don't know. I feel like... I feel like some of those... CK2 quirks have just been like pushed a little bit into different areas in ways that show up more to me playing this game because everything else is so smooth. It's like, it's, you know, I don't know. It's like you, you can peel back the layers more easily and then you see, Oh, I don't know if I really, I don't know if I'm really all that interested in doing this, uh, in this way. And yeah, I'm sort of trailing off here, but that, yeah. that's kind of how I feel about CK3. Like, I really genuinely think it is a better game than CK2. Uh, the interface is magnificent. These are all things that are wonderful things for getting people into Paradox games. However, I remember when I played CK2, I played it for review. I gave it a very good review. Not like a, this is an era-defining strategy game, but like this is a really good story generator. I like it a lot. I turned in my review. I immediately went back to playing CK3 or CK2 and continued playing it like for the next three weeks straight and then, you know, on and off for the next year or so. Um, this game, I did that one campaign. I started up another one, like almost instantly became a duke from my one county character like without even trying and was like okay i'm gonna go play something else now I but guess. How, I much, how much of that is that you didn't know what you were doing with ck2 and now you have so much experience that it's too easy to become a duke i mean there's some of that but this one i w- literally wasn't trying i was the second son <laughs> and who was a count and then the first king and the uh, older brother just suddenly died and I'm like okay now I have five counties at a duchy I don't yeah all right uh I, I mean you know that's just kind of accidental that's the way the numbers happen to roll um but yeah uh I just 
I feel like some of the excitement is gone. And yes, some of that is the familiarity, but that's also a thing to say about CK3 is that it's extremely familiar if you have played CK2. It's like CK2 with a better interface. It's it's weird to hear you talking about um, kind of empire building or getting duchies too quickly and that sort of ruining the experience because for me the experience isn't isn't building up a big empire or getting lots of territory it's role-playing the dynasty um and expanding that that might not even be in my empire under my control it's kind of just seeing this alt history going on rather than just making the map one color so if i suddenly like inherit a kingdom and now i'm a king uh, it's a whole new set of responsibilities for one to deal with, but that kingdom could just divide into three, like it did, like that that one when I assassinated my brother. Um, but there's, and then I'm dealing with another crisis. And um, there's always ways uh, where you can go off and do something random, or be like, right, I'm done with this part of the world. I'm gonna sail off, and I'm gonna set up a kingdom in, you know, North Africa randomly. Uh, I just it's like I'm never thinking like how can I go big but like where can I go that's interesting okay going big is what resolves these crises this is another thing is that like the better your character is the more people like them um so there is like basically a fame thing and the more famous your character is when you get to living legend it's a plus 60 from literally everyone in the kingdom or everyone in the world has a plus 60 relationship with you because they think that you have done really well. And like this happens naturally if you succeed at dealing with crises. And then, you know, if you have a succession crisis where you have three different kingdoms, the way to resolve that is by building an empire. Like then you only have the one throne. And if you have to dispense with those kingdoms to other people who are or aren't in your family or who are, you know, second sons or whatever, you can do that. Um, so yeah, this is, uh, Rob is wanting to move on to some other things. Uh, but yeah, this is, this is a thing that I, I am struggling with, with this game and it does kind of remind me of, you know, I'll say the bad word. It does kind of remind me of Stellaris having talked with Liana a little bit about this on, on our discord. Like there is a kind of, if all you want to do is the role playing, the role playing is there and it's way better than Stellaris. Don't get me wrong. But I'm not sure it has like the balance of how to pressure you right. And mm. the way that you manage to get out of scrapes is ways that just make the game easier overall. I think um, I think comparing this to Stellaris is a little bit violent uh, to skate through. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I, I, yeah. I, I get where you're coming from. I do kind of wonder if we're talking about like maybe a, if I were to think a thing, a difficulty setting that would maybe like make this game maybe a little more reliably interesting is um i'm thinking about how uh if you play like a harder campaign in three kingdoms total war it seems like uh your generals just get pissed off more often um loyalty <laughs> becomes a bigger issue yeah and so the dream team of like talented officers that you had in like normal normal difficulty where we're just like, man, you're the man. I love serving you. You're great. Give me a big army and I'll go win you the empire. I'm like, cool, go do that. Uh, that becomes much harder as the loyalty aspect becomes uh, more contentious because there probably aren't 
enough resources to distribute among your generals to keep them all happy. And so you do have a lot of people who are like kind of pissed off and you're dealing with the effects of having like a kind of an angry court. And I do think I was struck how often um, relationships seem very reliable in CK3 in so far as you, not, not just that it will break down what the what the drivers of the relationship are, uh, but I, I I think you know if somebody wants to be on a console that's console that's worth like forty favor just reliably, even if. This is an incredibly powerful duke who could probably like overthrow you if they really wanted to. Like the superiority of their position still doesn't seem like it creates the sort of friction that you would expect from that, right? Like I can still massage yeah. those differences away uh, surprisingly easily in CK3. I can, I can see your point there where it'd be like, I think I might like a little more human vagaries sometimes in some of those relationships where it's like i just can't make this person like me yeah i just like i just it like for instance i think sometimes things would get really interesting when i had like a less graceful or less sociable king and like i would stumble backwards into making an enemy out of one of my nobles because like i was just shitty at a feast um that would happen sometimes it was very funny uh, but I kind of wish there was more of that where it's like, oh, hey, you know, we should hang out or I really appreciate you. You're a good vassal. And somehow that lands terribly. And suddenly, like, you're kind of looking over your back. And there wasn't a lot of that, I will admit. Yeah. So the Stellaris thing is not because this is quality like Stellaris, but because my natural way of like. I like to play games in a natural kind of way, yeah. the way that I feel like I don't like to min max. I don't like to like go in and do all the research. I don't like to force myself to try to do things badly. I like to just kind of play the way that I think might be good and see what happens. And I want the game to pressure me and tell me, no, you have to make some decisions that are hard. And I, I noticed that this game is kind of built not to really do that to me where and that's, you know, my biggest problem with Stellaris was that when I would do that, it would just do nothing. Um, and this game is much better. There's still lots of interesting things happening. I still have fun. Like the, don't get me wrong, but just Rowan's psychology yeah. playing as Rowan, pretty good at strategy games, not going to blow you away, not going to be horribly incompetent, uh, wants to have be pressured and see what happens. And this game is less good at that in ways that, Work also kind of true for CK2, just now we can see them a little bit easier, I feel. So, yeah. To the sources of pressure, uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, plots and factions and hooks, sort of the things that do become either weapons in your hand or uh, like problems to navigate in CK3. Um, Fraser, I, I feel like you mentioned... Uh, factions at one point uh I'm, I'm curious how often you know in when when you were having those internal strife issues um how often did you find yourself suddenly staring down different like uh factions within your court and within within your kingdom and like starting to realize that the ground was shifting under your feet a little bit and did like intrigue start start to come into play there so i i 
really dove into the intrigue system, even with like characters that were naturally shit at it. Um, because it's just a, it's just a really fun system on its own. Um, but yeah, I, I did have to deal with quite a few faction disputes and people backing different uh, candidates for the crown or looking to lower my authority. Sometimes it would be because uh, just a, of a series of disasters that lowered everyone's like opinion off me. So it made it easier for these factions to recruit people. Um, or maybe like I just decided, you know what, I'm going to have maybe one or two more duchies than that's recommended and just see how it goes for <laughs> a few duchies. years. <laughs> see, this thing, I, I like... You know, I, I looked at some of my kings and thought they would have more duchies than they should. They would be like that. So I'm going to do that and see what happens. And uh, yeah, factions would, would sometimes rise up and be like, maybe you're bad as a king. Uh, and like, yeah, you would just have to dive into, into the, the intrigue system, not necessarily by like creating a plot, but maybe just first sending your spy master out uh, and seeing if they can find secrets that can be turned into hooks to kind of hold over certain individuals to keep them uh, on my side, even though they absolutely hated me. Um, I think like the whole blackmail favor system, like I find it really, it was like so many things and it's much easier to, to use than CK2's intrigue system. And it was like, it just seemed more well-defined. Um, but it could still go disastrously wrong. Uh, you can get caught out on a plot. You can just struggle to actually have the the influence, the skill to actually succeed in the plot in the first place. And thus, you start looking for other agents you can bring in, start delving into more of the, the social systems. Uh, like, that's one thing that I actually like love about the entry system is the way that it infiltrates everything else in the game so you're actually like when you're trying to be a sneaky king you're actually like dabbling in every part of the game learning about it just by focusing on this one thing and um, like the um the lifestyle system is a like in general is a great way to give you a focus that still allows you to like see the whole breadth of the game I do really like the lifestyle system, like giving giving your characters like those sorts of talent trees and various options within the talent trees feels like it's the the full flowering of what they were trying to get to with CK2 and just yeah, kind exactly. of like throw in a bunch of crap at the wall. But now I feel like, you know, these characters are my characters in a way that uh, was kind of haphazard before. Yeah, I just, that said, <laughs> I... I did kind of like struggle to actually get good things out of the intrigue system compared to uh, like being a steward or a marshal. I fucking love being a steward. Just give me all the money you have. But uh, apparently I am somewhat rare in that. So the, the, the thing I like to use intrigue for is uh, for one thing, it you know, you can keep people out of factions if you get a strong hook on them, which is great. But uh, also the, uh, there's like a whole realm consolidation step that happens in between your conquests between my conquests, I should say where like after I've conquered a bunch of territory, I usually have a ruler who I take down the intrigue path just so I can get hooks on all of my vassals and raise their feudal obligations without being seen as a tyrant. <laughs> like it's almost this like weird roundabout way of like coring territory in EU4 
where it's like, okay, I have this guy as a vassal, but I'm not getting the full value out of him. So I need to find out who he's been sleeping with so that I can be like, hey, uh, what if you send me some more levies and I don't uh, expose that your heir is a bastard? Uh, this seems like an equitable arrangement. Um, but overall, I love I love the idea of social leverage as a game mechanic. I think we've only seen the very beginnings of what they could possibly do with that. Obviously, I wouldn't want them to make it too overly complicated, but I think there is a lot more that they could do with that with with hooks and trading favors and like trading secrets and like all of these different ways that you could create interesting systems out of this concept of of this social leverage token that I have. Um, I, I love shit like that. Uh, some of my favorite tabletop role-playing games use systems like that to make social interactions more interesting and, and have them be a little bit more combat-like. And I think that that is a direction that it would be brilliant and uh, effective for Crusader Kings 3 to continue going down in the future. Uh, because you create these shadow wars where, like, the armies might not even necessarily matter, but all this backroom stuff is going to change the course of history. Um, I do think that uh, there are these weird rhythms to the game where I have kind of a totally different thing, <laughs> but it was like every time my character would die, I would, you know, inherit as a younger, weaker heir and immediately have the liberty faction be like hey we want more rights sometimes i'd fight the civil war sometimes i'd let them win uh and if i lost then you know the next 15 20 years are reconsolidating the realm getting those hooks back up on them getting the levies back or you know dealing with having a shitty marshal because they have that hook on me and like once that process is accomplished, that heir is so famous, or the new king is so famous, that now they can just raise the uh, uh, autonomy level, uh, or lower the autonomy level, whatever. Uh, give themselves more power, reconsolidate, do it again. Um, and, like, that's... That was both, like, a fun thing to do, and also kind of predictable in a way that... Uh, you know, took away some of the storytelling. I would like for the vassals to go for independence more than liberty sometimes. They always go for liberty first, and then they don't want to declare yes. war again if they win. Yeah. So there should also be some some concept of stakes in terms of like the bigger your kingdom gets, the bigger the actual pie is, the more people are gonna want a bigger piece of it. And I think that would be a great check against snowballing. Yeah, I definitely see with each new rule. Sorry, Rob. No, no, go no, ahead. go for it. And with each new ruler, I kind of felt it was like an opportunity to try something different. Obviously, sometimes there would be plans that I'd have. My ruler would die and I'd be like, right, I still want to see these two like completion. So I'm going to keep down this path with the new ruler if I can. Uh, but a lot of the time it was like, I want to make a really pious ruler and see how far I can get into maybe starting a new religion or, you know, this ruler is going to maybe just bugger off to a new country and like start an adventure over in the different uh, different part of the world or this one's gonna have loads and loads of unprotected sex and die with a green <laughs> penis um there's like it's it because it was like rob was saying before like it's a new season of, of, of tv so it's like a fresh start um so i would often see my realms like really fluctuate and change dramatically like over the over general like only one or two generations um 
because I was trying something differently. And I felt that CK3 was inspiring me to do that more because of things like the stress and lifestyle system where everyone has these defining personality traits uh, that they always have uh, that means that doing things that go against their character will generate stress. So even though there are ways to overcome stress, I still often felt like I want to stick with who this character is. This feels more natural. And the game is kind of always nudging you towards that. Um, So like, I just, I I never felt like I was going through a routine uh, with each of them. Like there was obviously a lot of, of rulers that had similar stats and personalities so there are certain eras that would be quite samey but in general I was always looking forward to trying something new and experimenting oh yeah the the people were different just like the the way the faction faction situation happened was you know new ruler means lower power over vassals which they reconsolidate and then they just kind of can coast once they're you know in their 40s or whatever which I, there, there is an interesting narrative aspect to this. I don't, I don't hate it. It just, uh, there was a little bit of faction repetition there. Um, I definitely did end up do like kind of doing routines. And I think for me, the difference was I found those routines really satisfying because they did change over time. I would get better at them, but I do like, I think again, uh, Fuck, is Rowan convincing me to like this game less over the course of the show? I might. Uh, <laughs> uh. Look, look, Rob, it could always be worse. Just ask Cleona. Uh. <laughs> uh, I, would, so, I would argue that it's better, uh, but yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, no, I think, uh, but I think you make a good point uh, that like there would be these routines of okay, uh, if I can just get this monarch to hold on long enough, everyone's going to love him. I can like increase crown authority. And then, yes, on succession, there will be a liberty faction. And once I realized, like, okay, reliably, the liberty faction will be a problem, I started realizing that, like, hey, look, if my, you know, 50, 60-year-old monarch, the living legend himself, uh, exactly. decides to, like, revoke people's titles for stepping out of line... Uh, he will take the heat for that, but it won't. It'll probably solve problems for the air, and so then the routine starts changing a little bit. Um, I think maybe though, like to this game's credit, where things would begin to spin out of my control a little bit was um, unfortunate events could really blow those routines apart uh, in ways that would catch me out maybe that's the way it should be right like it's not like it's not like politics in this period necessarily should be ridiculously volatile but because there is so much left to chance and misfortune because everything hinges on individuals uh in this setting uh it should also not take too much to send things hurtling out of control a little bit and so like yes i might have a succession routine that worked pretty ironclad like storing up money to bribe or hire mercenaries to get myself out of problems um but that routine would fail pretty badly when for instance i did all that consolidation with my new ruler and then he keeled over dead at the age of like 41 
and now I have no money. My heir is like 16 years old, and now nobody respects this guy, and all those issues are coming back. Then it would get a little more interesting. It, it, I think the game definitely shines the most when, like, suddenly you're playing a five-year-old. Yeah. And, like, all of a sudden you have to, like, figure out how to negotiate not having really any autonomy for, like, ten years. And then, like, slowly building up who you are over the course of that time. Mm-hmm. Like, that's that's when, that's when the good shit tends to Yeah, that to was happen. good. That was true in CK2 as well. The one other thing I did want to suggest is that some people should not like you for being a living legend. Like some people should just be like, you know what? Fuck that guy. He's too popular. He's an asshat. I hate him. People people are always talking about how great he is. Yeah. Plus 60. How about minus 60? How about I don't like people who other people like and I'm going to start a civil war over it. Maybe people with the jealous trait do that. I don't know. Or ambitious. Well, they have that as like a minus, but then the living legend thing offsets it. So it should just, yeah, invert it. Yeah. Yeah. How much did the, um, how much did the familial bloodline stuff change things up for you? I think for me, the issue has been, I tend not to stick with games so long that I'm like filling out the entire bloodline. Like I'm just like, eh, I'm going to go do something else now. Uh, yeah, and so it ends up being a thing where like it exists, but I'm not sure I'm not sure I'm getting a lot out of it. Yeah, yeah it's it's a I found it like a nice thing to have there. Uh, it aided role playing a little bit, but I was not it was not like game defining. In any it's, way. it's nice to have a persistent progress or like progression system that you can take with you, no matter whether or not your kingdom like falls completely into ruin. Like your dynastic progress will always stay with you, but I think they're very underwhelming right now, uh, considering how long, especially the later ones, take to unlock. And sometimes it's like a plus five opinion bonus or something. Like they feel very underwhelming. At least some of the trees do. Um, yeah, the concept's good, I, but they are just absolutely shit. <laughs> they're just like there's in the like in the lifestyle trees. There are some like stinkers, but generally they're like next to like ones that are almost like game changing like give every kid that you sired a plus one to all their skills like shit like that and but yeah there's nothing nearly as good in most of the the dynasty trees like i like that you can evolve this character over time so you're like this is what our dynasty's like we're more warlike we're really good at having sex and kids. Um, <laughs> it's a really weird one. Um, but, like, I just think they could go more, like, just, I don't deeper with the character stuff. Like, if you're wanting these dynasties to have more personality, don't just, uh, like, give me a five, a plus five opinion bonus. Give me something meaningful and, like, I guess almost like, because you're kind of building, like, a loadout almost, right? right. You're like... Like, it's almost like picking cards from a deck or something like that. I want something that, like, becomes the linchpin in my build. Counterpoint. It's really fucking creepy to talk about a family as though they have, like, these inherent traits that are going to, like, be carried for hundreds and hundreds of years. Like, just the thought of it makes my skin crawl a little bit. Especially the, like, Bloodlines one. um, Where, like, everyone that you all of your kids like get slightly better because your genes are so good or whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They're, they're, that's a little weird. I mean, Crusader Kings has always had that eugenics element and CK three, I think leans into it a little bit more uh, than they maybe did previously, which is, you know, 
It has some issues. It's like, creepy, but it's like There's... true to what these idiots thought. Like, <laughs> that's... Yeah, yeah. It's not creepy in a way that like breaks the game uh-huh. or anything or makes it problematic. It just, uh, well, I mean, it's problematic in the way that the term should be used. Let's examine why we're thinking about <laughs> this. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It's a thing that I could see them rethinking dramatically or just kind of leaving in as a, a neat kind of thing. And either one of those is good by me if the rethink really works. But uh, yeah, it's not not game changing. Yeah, something that takes me 100 years to unlock should not give me plus one domain limit. That's that's my <laughs> that's the upshot. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't get on too much with that system. Like I'm happy to have it in there, but yeah, it just it it did feel like the payoffs are too few, few and far between, and it also just conceptually, it's it's a little bit strange. Like I'm happy to like I'm happy to be empowered to be like, yeah, I want a family of, like kick ass warlords. That's how I'm gonna play this game. Um, but it's it's but I think to to you know the point you made, Rowan. Like it, things get more interesting. Uh, when things are not going according to plan, I think maybe the bloodlines cuts against that just a little bit uh, by sort of mm. promising, you know, you, you can count on these buffs uh, at least. And that's going to, you know, that can come. In that, handy. I, that actually might be the way to deal with it is that uh, you get stronger buffs, but you also get some notable debuffs. Like you have a warrior clan, but maybe they're like, you know, got some berserker issues or everyone hates them more when they kill somebody because they know they're going to kill somebody that kind of thing that would be a really good source of like personality character to the dynasty if there's an actual like downside to it Uh, yeah i wanted to ask in both crusader kings games i've tended to stick to western europe the mediterranean a little bit of like the levant uh but in general you know places where we think of like medieval shit happening uh, with you know the you know the, the eurocentric uh worldview and i know that by the time ck2 wrapped they had expanded both the time that game covered and the cultures that game covered uh quite a bit and it feels like broadly we've kind of picked up from from where that left off uh but i am curious for those of you who've experimented and played around with uh cultures outside what we think of as like the center of like feudal europe uh what like does the experience uh does the experience translate well does it feel like uh it is a it is a culturally different landscape and you're playing a slightly different sort of game uh or does it kind of like I'm, i'm just kind of curious how these how different areas uh and their issues kind of come across in this game sub saharan africa is really surprisingly good um uh, both east and west i've played both uh, kind of over in the um uh sort of benin area and then i also did a game as the kushites from uh, modern day sudan where i kind of restored the <laughs> egypt to pharaonic rule uh those areas are very well done uh the uh the east i've played a little bit of, you know in uh, nepal tibet india uh is quite a bit of fun over there um I think we need a sort of Islam too. The Islamic world right now, I would say, is kind of bland and and boring and and kind of like misrepresented in some ways. Uh, there's actually a really good video 
I posted on Twitter from a guy who's a, a PhD uh, student in in Islamic history that was pointing out some of the ways that it was weird. Um, I think we need an Islam too. Yeah, yeah, Islam too. That's yeah. that's that's a thing the neoconservatives have been saying for a while. Of course, yeah. So I I would say uh, I would say like the the Eastern religions. Um, and then most of the pagan areas are are very are very well done and a lot of fun right now. Uh, the Islamic world is where I would say, and obviously the steps because they're gonna figure out some way to actually properly implement nomads, presumably, um, are are what need the most attention. I haven't really even messed around because like it just doesn't feel right to be a Kipchak Turk and then be like uh, the sedentary settled uh tribal society okay yeah okay did y'all get into games where the mongols invaded i've seen it once yeah i i i had a mongol invasion they just settled down they just stopped they they you know kublai hung out <laughs> uh in kazakhstan or whatever and that was it there was no like further movement and this actually would have really helped the history because uh the byzantines were just like dominating everything and like moving up even into central russia and like if there were mongols who were like taking them on then history might have gotten a little more uh a little more not necessarily on track but um unfriendly to giant empires uh the game is currently very friendly to giant empires yes um so yeah, that's that's a weird thing I noticed was that I did not get a whole lot out of the Mongols, and there are no Turkish invasions, which is also a very strange thing for the the time period. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah, wanted to know if y'all saw the Mongols getting into Europe and shit. no, I didn't see them get that far. They had, I guess, he had a stately pleasure dome to decree or something. <laughs> he just wasn't feeling it. <laughs> Always yeah. takes that decision. Yeah. Just... Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm definitely like happy that all of that stuff is in there. I think where I'm at is, um, now I'm kind of having my galaxy brain moment of like, what if CK three, but like around the world and in different eras. Uh, so I'm, so I'm right back at that. Um, man, imagine if they made a CK three, but it was Rome. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm I mean sorry. that's I, I've said unironically. If somebody made a an Imperator Rome mod for CK3, I would rather play that than Imperator Rome. Yes. Uh, um. So I think one one last thing uh, I wanted to ask you all: How do you find the warring? Because you spend a lot of time at war. Is it just standard paradox fighting? Uh, well, not just warring, but also um, let's start with the, these two things that you do a lot of in paradox games, but I think we tend not to talk much about. Warfare and actual governance. Um, it's weird to me how little I think about this stuff. Uh, and it, I, I don't know. It's um, I have gotten a taste of how important developing wisely can be. For instance, uh, you know, occasionally when I was sort of going for those empire titles, I would end up conquering lands that were way stronger than my homeland, but then I would forget to transfer my imperial seat to the new, like, awesome town. And on succession, I would suddenly be king, but, like, 
my holdings sucked and somebody else had a shit ton of resources because I had just continued throwing good money after good and I continued developing uh, some of my new territories to become like military and economic powerhouses. But then I'd sort of like not realize that basically I was doing all that work for somebody else who's going to inherit. Um, and so I, I would sort of realize you had to do sort of generational thinking uh, when it comes to this game. It's not like EU where you just have a huge bank and eventually you're just clicking, uh, you know, oh, build, build counting houses and all these places. Uh, cool. Done. Done thinking about that for a while. Uh, but at the same time, I think by and large, I didn't really develop much of a feel for the lands I governed or what was happening there or like what the basis of my economy was in CK3. It was all just like sort of out there in the feudal ether where I was like, higher development levels sound good. Yeah, I'll click the guilds button. It's lit up. I'll do that. Uh, but it didn't, I'm not sure it generated a lot of interesting decisions to fall back on that overused phrase. Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, it's sort of like the dynasty tree where like the ideas are there or not the dynasty tree, the dynasty decisions or whatever. The ideas are there to make it like much stronger. Like the idea of taking a county and saying, this is going to be my, you know, my money county. I'm going to build nothing but uh, gold stuff here. Like that's that's in there, but it's basically like you can do a mil you can do a gold county or you can do a military county or both, and that's it. Uh, like yeah, they could they could go a little bit further if they wanted to focus you on that part of the game, and I'm not sure they actually do because like as you say, this is this is a game about like building up your relationships and figuring out how to deal with unpleasant dukes or that kind of thing. Like taking my focus and splitting it to, okay, I have to do like a, a total Warhammer, uh, decide like what my, the nature of my economy in this County is going to be. And like really kind of build that up and create all the synergies. Uh, that's not actually, well, not actually a thing that uh, I think would necessarily improve this. Game. Well, and the other thing is like the the framework is definitely there that like, OK, I'm going to build a duchy level building that's going to give me more troops and then I'm going to put troop buildings on all the counties and we're going to have this great like synergistic stacking modifier. But it's like by the time you have two duchies and that you have a succession law that will allow you to keep those two duchies for more than one generation. It just doesn't matter. Like, you're so powerful at that point that, like, there's no reason to do that level of micromanagement. Like, yeah. so... Like, early on in the game, it's like, I invest exclusively in one county because I don't know what else I'm going to be able to keep in this next round of succession. And it's not until, like, the 1200s, basically, that you get a law that guarantees you will keep all of your land from one generation to the next. Speaking of... <laughs> That text, that text stuff makes so much more better sense right now than uh, the CK two. Oh one. yeah, oh uh, yeah. Just gotta, just gotta give a shout out like that. That part is, it's not excessive. It's not like Civilization where you're like all in on figuring out your uh, your tech tree constantly. That's like the main focus. It's like a thing that's there. It works. It's interesting, but it's not 
not dominant, and I think they, they got that pretty well right. Yeah, I um to the point to the point about technology though, I saw y'all having an interesting conversation, or maybe it was just uh Len, uh having a conversation about like start <laughs> dates. And yeah. like I, I wanna hear I wanna hear you explore this thought a little bit more. Uh is there a good is there a good start date in this that like before this certain era, CK3 is a worse game? And in this era, you're like, no, it's good. Like, isn't the Drake meme basically when it, when it comes to like start dates? <laughs> so, eight sixty seven is an absolute horrifying soup of border gore, and that bothers me a lot. Um, it might not bother you as much as it bothers me, um, and you can kind of ignore it. Like when I was playing down in in East Africa, I was like whoa, I don't know what's going on in Western Europe right now, and I just don't want to look at it. And, like, I don't have to, so that's okay. <laughs> like, unless unless they show up at my door, it's like I can kind of focus on what I'm doing over here. Uh, 1066 will give you what looks like a much more historically plausible scenario without you having to personally be like, I'm, I'm going to form a, a pan-continental empire and fix it myself. Um, I don't necessarily think it's as bad as like 769 ended up being in ck2 like it's 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 good it's like it's it's a good functional start date with some interesting dynamics going on um obviously the 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 fact that step societies aren't really modeled right now at all is gonna make it weird no matter what um but i think 1066 will give you a more historical feeling game for sure and if that is something that you value it's something that i value you might want to stick to 1066 for now i would say that 1066 uh from what i can tell i've only played a little bit in it but i played my full 867 game like there are two big things that make it feel more historical uh first is that um much like CK2, you get about three, four hundred years in this game before the empires just start becoming super massive and you're actually like getting into, you know, renaissance levels of domain control and consolidation. So, yeah, the you basically have like a historical endpoint at like at like 1300 when you're playing an 867 game. Um, where Tit 66 is built a little bit more towards ending when the game is supposed to end. Uh, the other thing is that, like, as mentioned, Catholicism is super duper under siege. And this is historically accurate, but it's unlikely that Catholicism will win. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that does not seem to be a thing that is likely to happen uh, just on its own. You have to uh, probably make that happen if you're going to do that, which is a fun uh a fun motivator like that was the thing that kept me going for a while in my game once i had consolidated aquitaine and the various kingdoms involved is like okay now i'm basically you know the shield the defender of the faith uh and i have a narrative to play with until uh until i get too dominant at that which eventually happened but that kept me going even at the kingdom and empire level um 
But if you are looking for a historical thing where Catholicism controls most of Europe, Islam controls most of the Mediterranean, uh, the Byzantines are kind of trying holding on as best they can. They maybe have the Russians on their side uh, as the Orthodox. Like these, these things are more likely to progress in a way that is familiar in 1066. So to wrap up here, we're all pretty agreed. Good game, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's my favorite game of the moment and probably my game of the year so far. Maybe we'll see. Uh, in terms yeah. of like ranking it among Paradox games, I think for a long time I was more an EU4 person. I think I went off that game for a little while. I think now I'm sort of back on. Like I think for the, this, this is the one that like for me is hitting in a way I've not been into Paradox games since like EU4 came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so like I am instantly back in that uh, sort of obsessive mindset um where 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 are you like personally rating it right now fairly easily number one for me like i I don't even really have to debate that too much like i can i can think about some ways that eu4 is more interesting in in the way that it presents you with challenges uh sort of along the lines of what rowan was was discussing some of the things that ck3 specifically is bad at eu4 is very good at but if you ask me, if, if you put all of the Paradox Slate in front of me and ask me, you can only play one of these for the rest of your life, I'd just be like, CK3, easy, done. Are we including Battletech? No. <laughs> PDS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah. I know. Uh, I know, I, I, I would say it's a fairly solid number two. Uh, I would definitely play it over a random game of Hearts of Iron, but uh, EU4, I think... I don't know. Right now, the novelty would probably have me click on CK3 if that was where I was, uh, if I was just asked tomorrow to pick a PDS game to play. But I would say that EU4 is still definitely my favorite. But this one, I'm very happy it exists. I do have some criticisms that I believe, you know, might make the game better with the right expansions or patches or mods. Uh, But like, it's really great that there is a CK3 that I can recommend to people without saying, here's a 50-page guide. Trust me, it's not that bad, but it does seem that bad at first. No, CK3, I could just say, you can probably play this. You'll get it. Um, and that is, you know, fantastic because previously the only Paradox game you could do that with was Stellaris and, you know, God knows where that leads. <laughs> uh, but I, I would say that, like, as as a thing that I say is, like, a better strategic experience i would play eu4 but that's not it's not that big of a difference and this game could fairly easily surpass it just because it's fun to be around it's a nice game to experience in a way that no other paradox game has been i would probably called it like number one even when we just had the preview code before it even (laughs) come out like i was like yeah this this game is gonna be like my forever game uh, at least until ck4 um Uh, yeah, I'm obsessed with it. I think it's just fantastic. I think across the board, it is an improvement on CK2, which was previously uh, my favorite PDS game. Uh, yeah, there's uh, there are certain things that I, I miss that we touched on earlier, things like the sort of more autonomous council that can meddle in your affairs a bit more. Um, and yeah, there are certain certain ways that it could be 
made a little bit more challenging, but I feel like given how much joy I've already gotten out of it, it's like almost nitpicking because it's just so damn compelling. So yeah, easy number one for me. All right, uh, I think that will do it for this week, but I doubt it will do it for CK3. I'm, I'm really interested in seeing how this one wears and uh, you know where some of us might be with it later this year. So we might be revisiting this uh, bef- before too long, uh, but we'll be back next week with more strategy discussion. This episode was produced by uh, Liana Hafer. Through His Head is hosting the Adult Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Finally, Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. You can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. It also has further information about our super secret Discord server where we occasionally talk about strategy games. Until uh, Anyway, we'll be back next week with another episode of Three Moves Ahead. Until then, for Rowan, Liana, and Fraser, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight.